0: This episode is brought to you by Pillar Performance, with the help of me, Frederick Funk. I'm used to doing most of Jack's work for him, as you know, but I didn't think he would ask me to do his advertising reads for him. This is a new one. I've been using Pillar since the end of last year. I've never really placed a focus on micronutrition, but began hearing about what Pillar had developed in Australia and I thought I would reach out to learn more. I was impressed with the level of research and discovery that team is doing in relation to micronutrients and performance helping to solve for sleep, recovery, immunity, energy and inflammation. All things important to me, but things I hadn't really been focusing on. I'm a big fan of my sleep, as those who watch my YouTube channel know. So when my aura data showed me the increased performance from taking the triple magnesium, I became completely obsessed. I also have been using the Ultra Preactive in the morning with my breakfast for increased energy throughout the day and to ultra C has helped me avoid illness this season. It also tastes delicious. To get 20% off use the code HTT20 it's working worldwide and the code is also available on the feed
1: i'm so excited to bring you a brand new mini series of the triathlon hour called the coaches what i've done is i've picked 12 of the world's best triathlon coaches and split them up into pairs i've then asked those pairs to catch up over a coffee and have a conversation about triathlon training and coaching and the most important part I've recorded those conversations so that we can all be flies on the wall listening to two of the world's best triathlon coaches have a conversation as if we were there. Let's go.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's good to catch up. I, I kind of was saying to Jack that, you know, it, it's, it's ironic that when you, when you work for a governing body, you know, if you have like some thoughts about some particular topic or a problem with an athlete, you know, you just walk down the corridor and knock on the door and you know, you kind of say, Oh, Hey, you know, you're the sprint coach. You know, um, what do you think about this thing mm-hmm. or this situation? But when we all work in the private sector, it, it's kind of like everybody's like really siloed, and and I think there's a hesitancy on a lot of people's part to just like message somebody and say, "Hey, can we just you know, like catch up?" And I I kind of joke that it's a bit like uh, there's a very famous English uh, chef lady called Nigella Lawson who makes like mm-hmm. ridiculously mm-hmm. Ex- exorbitant cakes and things. Uh, she's famous for. It. <laughs> You know, everybody can read the ingredients, but nobody can make a Black Forest Gato like Nigella Lawson. And so yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. having these types of conversations. I think, you know, you and I are probably at a point where there's no discomfort in having this type of conversation. because even If I t- if I, if I tell you something that I did with Lionel or with Ashley or, it, you know, anybody else, it's like, you know, it's like a pinch of salt versus the whole thing. So,
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, fun that you're saying that because I had a chat with Dan Plus. I think like more or less two or two and a half months ago when um, Chelsea Sodaro was coming over to Europe for the whole bike fitting and aero fitting stuff and everything. Yes. And then he was a bit unsure um, what we what we were doing and this and that. So totally fair. Yeah. And then I texted him and I said, Dan, let's have a chat and I'll explain to you. The cooperation we have with Kenyon and what we are doing in the bike fitting, what we're doing in the aero tests that we do not have in mind only to lower your CDA values, but also take care on her position and the whole power transformation yeah. and everything. And and then Dan said a pretty cool thing like, um, well, you're the first pro coach I really ever talked to. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay, good to hear that because... It's yeah. not like I'm me having contact to let's say like five others and we're doing a weekly meeting or something like that yes, because yeah. normally we all know each other sometimes yeah. we met in person sometimes we know better or not but honestly even with Dan Lorang, for example sure I chatted with him like several times concerning yeah. sometimes pro cycling sometimes whatever anyhow and so on but honestly we never really sat together, for example, for a longer dinner or something, or like three. Yeah, beers. just like
2: chew that and just chew the fat on yeah, something. Just, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's only profession and not really in person, like like a like a chat, like a private talk yeah. whatsoever. But yeah, fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I spoke to Dan a couple of years ago, and I I kind of tease him because um, I pride myself on having beaten him in a triathlon. But there again, that <laughs> triathlon was an Olympic distance, and he was like. 13 years old and I was 19 years old. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I I do think this kind of conversation it, it kind of would be fun if somebody organized something like this in, in say in, in Kona. You know, if there was like five or six of us just like having That would
3: be good. That's a good idea. So yeah. cuz we we are already booked the Kona trip. Yeah. Um and that would be a good idea. So I take that on my yeah. list count me but it's
2: in. okay right mm-hmm. that puts me that puts me under pressure to, to be in kona now with, uh, with sky so
3: oh yeah and she's not qualified already yeah got it no she is no she
2: is yeah she's qualified yeah um and then i haven't i haven't got any other female pros at the moment that are okay i uh, yeah, in yeah. kona i've got a couple that are eyeing 70.3 Lati. um and that's that's an hour drive for me. So that's not yeah, too that, bad. That's good. Are you, uh, are you are you
3: coming over for that? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. Um, there's Nice on the list and there's Kona on the list. And I think, yeah. I don't know about, so we haven't set that up, some kind of training camp in, in August, probably for Nice. Because I'm on holiday from mid-July to beginning of August. That's always the time off let's say, not like off-off, but yes. at the time without traveling, just being away with the family, maybe just one, two calls a day, and that's it. Um, So therefore, I'm not 100% sure. And then we have this wind tunnel project, which is being built starting, or actually it started, but next week, the house around the tunnel is being built. Yes. And then we have the opening around probably November, December this year. Okay. Maybe yeah. January, February, beginning of next year. Um yeah. so therefore that will be quite a trip because it's always like I'm living a bit north of Hamburg by now. Yeah. Moving house. So in three months I'm I have a pretty close way to the airport in Hamburg, but still Hamburg Ah, uh, South Bavaria is still a long trip. I mean, that's like nine hundred kilometers. You can't drive it's... that, and yeah, therefore yeah. you'll have to fly. For example, Hamburg, Munich, but then it's still an hour away. For example, by car, so not the easiest trip, and that's always something you have to count in because it's minimum one travel day. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, not easy. And it's not.
2: It's not like it's not like we chose a career where we have a private helicopter just to
3: to hop into. Absolutely not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I always I always joke I always joke when people uh, one of the things that always makes me joke about that is when people say uh, or you know you're speaking to an athlete and they're like oh I don't like doing strength and conditioning work I'm going to get really bulky and I say if I could make you like really bulky off like three times thirty minutes of like some conditioning work a week. Yeah. I would literally be driving around in two Lamborghinis and living yeah. in a five million dollar <laughs> and I'm not. So so let's not worry about you getting massive hypertrophy off like ninety minutes of core work.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. How's your business build? Do you have age group athletes you you're coaching or
2: so I yeah, I have a slightly different business model to you. I I just just coach like a small roster of people globally and it's it's mainly professionals with a yeah. couple of sort of elite age groupers and and to be fair like most of them I've been coaching sort of five five to ten years now yeah. so yeah uh, it's just sort of occasional chats and I write the training and they you know we we catch up but then it's it's about 14 or 15 people globally and, and that's it and Perfect. I don't I don't I don't sell training plans I don't write books I don't have yeah, a business yeah. I don't have assistant coaches and It's nice. I kind of, I made that bed some years ago. I've got a good friend who's like an entrepreneur stroke coach. And he was like, oh, you need to do X, you need to do Y. And I was like, that's great, Simon, but it doesn't really excite me. So i kind of happy with how I've made made things. I used to work in financial services, so I've done uh, the crazy hours and the silliness. So I'm kind of like, I'm over that.
3: And that's often the problem, to be honest, because if you... I mean, running a business was not like I didn't plan to run a coaching business. It just, let's say, happened because I started coaching, was in that business, got asked if I want to buy it. Then I thought it would make sense to grow it. But at that point, I was not thinking about what it really means to have not like a group of, let's say, three, four, five people running the same business, one location, that's it yeah um didn't think of all the consequences um because then I came up to a point where I had like 15 sports scientists like we have today yeah. on three different locations and there was no time at all for any kind of coaching or something you were yeah. just doing the business stuff and that bored me pretty fast after minimum half yeah. a year um <laughs> and now everything is, let's say, a bit more settled. So I have people around doing the whole management stuff and people around doing the accounting stuff and everything. So the business is, let's say, good enough or big enough to not only do everything on your own and then have coaches who are doing the jobs of coaching, but you have people around, again, like doing management and accounting and everything. That's fine because I... The good stuff is that I do not really, when I'm traveling for five days, I don't have to care for the business because it's running yeah. on its own. Yeah. Being back then means whatever, having some meetings about strategies and marketing and this and that yeah. and some stuff to do. Um, and that's fairly going well because you can just choose where you set up your main point. Is it traveling to a race? Then it's 100% pro sport. Yeah. On the other hand, it's just five or six professional athletes, so you can also handle that in on a normal day when you have several other meetings to do. So therefore, it's yeah. fine. It's working okay. But then, yeah, I'm I'm pretty bad in saying no whenever someone <laughs> comes up with a good idea. I'm into. Yeah like building a wind tunnel for example <laughs> um so therefore i have to learn to uh, that's a pretty new situation so actually not much to do
2: you could probably you could probably um i don't know if you know jamie pringle but,
3: uh, heard of him yeah
2: i think he worked at the boardman center yeah yeah
3: yeah, yeah, um, yeah. for a while
2: and i think he's a, he's at Vortech now
3: oh ah, yeah 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 not that pretty easy concerning the wind tunnel because we have someone here a partner we are where we are building the tunnel with and he does wind tunnel buildings projects executions and everything since like 30 years so it's going to be fine from that point it's oh, not like cool. a new technology you have to learn yeah. but it's yeah. a new business you have to set up and a new whatever again you start at a pretty low point doing all the awareness for wind tunnel testings in triathlon and cycling and yeah we'll see it's gonna be fun, yeah. but um, it means, on the other hand, that the whole process needs to be more efficient than it is by now. So I have to have to adjust it a little bit.
2: I am um, I, for like for many years, I I kind of worried that you know I should be at races and supporting athletes like a sort of you know coach, swanier, manager, sort of yeah. you know all things to all men and women. And it was funny because like when COVID happened and then after COVID. I, I said, and, and with the kids, I, I then sort of emailed all the athletes and I thought, well, why don't I just actually ask them what they want? And actually I emailed all of the pros and and to a T, all of them said, oh, we don't really care about you being a racist. <laughs> kind of yeah. quite happy for you to sit back in machine control, but we'd actually like you to kind of you know continue with sort of parachuting in and, and doing face-to-face coaching occasionally. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. It's a little more... Planning from a travel perspective, but it's a lot more worthwhile than yeah. um, showing up at a race and you know and just sort of being stood there. So, Kona is a different a different beast, or you know, Nice might be a different beast. Um, for you know, for all of us, I guess, from a, a brand and awareness perspective.
3: And I think it always depends a little bit on the athlete. I mean, if I take Kat Matthews, yeah. she doesn't need me on a on yeah. race day, so she has such a proper surrounding with Mark and is absolutely self-controlled and always focused and everything. So I don't have to do any kind of motivational speech. So yeah that she stands up in the morning doing a race or something like that. So going to Texas was more like, well, there are two with Jocelyn and Kat doing it. Yeah. It was like, well, it's two corner qualifications. There is a priority in and honestly I just wanted to be there. I just yeah. thought it makes more sense to hang around. It was an kind of an easy trip, let's say. Not easy like two hours by car, but you have quite good connections to Texas. It's always yeah. easy to get a good homestay. The area around is always... You can travel that by bike, everything. And yeah, and therefore, that's there that was more like, I want to be there, but not, I do need to be there. Because I yeah. think there would have been two Kona qualifications probably even without me. Yeah. And therefore, it was fine to be there. Absolutely fun. Uh, Totally great to see them both performing and getting the Kona slots and everything. Yeah. Cool to help. But if you really have to say family versus race or if there would have been an important date, like, I mean, if it's baby's birthday, for example. Yeah on that weekend honestly i think i do not want to travel on 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 yeah. these personal dates like this yeah. or i do not want to interrupt any kind of holiday or something so
2: and 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 i think on on a broader level of coaching i think something that doesn't get talked about a lot is just like the stress of coaching and when you look at other sports you know there's um multi, you know currently this season there's already there's been multiple hall of fame coaches in nba fired it's like insane and then you look in like other team sports and you know head coaches are just leaving in droves Um, and then you read biographies of you know famous football coaches in the in the premier league in the uk and to a T, all of them say if i could look back on my career my biggest regret is that I prioritised my work over my family. Absolutely, and it, it's 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 an interesting one. Um, so, I, yeah. it, it's that's why I think like having those conversations with athletes about what expectations they have is is always really key. But yeah, I can imagine it was it was fun in Texas. You probably did you turn around to the two of them and say, "Okay, play nice until five k to go on the run, and then you can kill each other."
3: <laughs> uh, it was more like well, Mark said or he didn't say but he's pretending that he did not say that to Kat when she started the run but the rumor says that he said to her well you choose to be in that hard position away from Maya for example now you have to yeah. run fast So, and there's discussions going on if you said like, well, you are in a hard position or you choose to be in there, like you bike too (laughs) slow, so therefore you have to do your job. (laughs) But now it's just, it was, honestly, it's like, that's always fun to be around with the Brits, same on Ibiza, for example, where, I mean, there was a pretty hard weekend to have a kind of, let's say popular triathlon weekend having the PTO race, having the ITU long distance world championships. Um planned were six athletes out of six on the start line on Saturday and Sunday, two didn't make yeah. it to Ibiza due to just smaller injuries or illnesses. So not big ones, but they weren't there. Yeah. Then out of four, three didn't arrive at the finish line. So and yeah. then it was um honestly and this was really I was pretty I don't know, I want to say depressed, that's maybe too hard, but...
2: Yeah, I know what you mean, it's like, it's like an empty... It's just like you've just been hollowed out emotionally.
3: And you're thinking about, what have I done wrong? Is there anything yeah. I can do better next time? And then also asking yourself questions, well, why did I spend a week on Ibiza for this? So, and not yeah. like pointing out to the athletes saying, you've not done a good job or it's your fault or something, never, ever. Mm. But it's like, well, does this all make sense to be away (laughs) from home for a week? And I mean, let's be honest, even if you take the economy part of it, I mean, I didn't earn a a cent on Ibiza, for example. And even if I would, so I would never ever travel to a race to earn money or to to care for the price money percentages or whatsoever. Very often, I do not even know. I can't tell you today. What the price money would have been for the ITU race, just because I do not know. But on the other hand, I mean, spending a thousand euros traveling there, being a week away from home and all this, and then coming home with like nothing, just bad results was like, (laughs) wow, I need some time off. And then I, yeah, and and then it honestly was pretty easy because I had Mark and Kat around, and I think we started drinking beer at 1 p.m. (laughs) and ended drinking beer at 1 a.m in the morning we were totally drunk and then it was fine again so then you yeah realized that it's more than just a result or just a slot or a title or whatsoever
2: yeah definitely i think the more experienced athletes like start to come to terms with a realization that you know it's like the sport doesn't define them and um and I always liked, I've had a couple of experiences in my in, in my coaching years where I, like, I realized the importance of influencing the human as opposed to the performance. Like I had one situation where I was coaching this really good age grouper and it was like the middle of the month and I'd like get this random amount of money in my PayPal from them. And I like phone them up and I'm like, you've paid your coaching fee for the month. So what's that? And they said, oh it's 10% of my annual bonus because my manager said that my sort of persona and mindset and approach he work Amazing. has fundamentally changed in the last sort of 12 months and and he said that and that's down to kind of how you've influenced me and i you know and it wasn't a vast amount of money but that's not the point it was just like oh wow yeah this is actually why i do the job right yeah. it's it's not it's not like getting second in yeah. in Kona with Lionel, because frankly, when we got second, like by by nine p.m. that night, I'd already written out a list of eight things that we needed to work on in order to go sub eight hours the next year. Um, I didn't get the option to do that, but um, but yes, yeah, you know, it's, Which it's nobody
3: understands honestly. <laughs> no,
2: nobody, no, nobody understands, and I think I think as a coach, like you. Um, uh, there's a there's a famous rugby coach called Eddie Jones, and he, and he kind of like I'm paraphrasing, but he kind of wrote about this that like when you operate at our level, you you kind of almost bipolar because on the one hand, you spend the whole time sort of racked with anxiety of like have I done enough? Have I paid enough attention yeah. to enough detail? Did I do the right thing here? Did I do the wrong thing there? Is like you know did I say the right thing? Did I say the wrong thing? And then the rest of the time. You're like, oh, my God, I'm a genius. I'm an absolute rock star because we crushed it. <laughs> and it's like this bipolar. And I think it's the same in the athletes. Like, I, yeah. you, you tell me because this is kind of somewhat your wheelhouse as well. But I kind of come to the conclusion that I think to be the, like the very best in the world, you have to have a, a significant element of imposter syndrome and anxiety around being the best version of yourself. Because I fundamentally don't believe that you can continuously push yourself for marginal gains year on year without being racked with self doubt. And so I think sometimes like trying to solve that with some sort of you know, sports psychology approach is not actually a good thing to do because that's what makes the athlete continuously strive to be better.
3: Yeah, a hundred percent. And, um, I often ask myself, for example, especially when it comes to traveling, um, and I do have the ups way more up when I'm at the location of the race, for example. Ironman Texas was 100% an up after a brutal down last year in September, same location. And that was a big part of the decision where I th- told myself, I need to go back to Texas. I want to be there again after Cat's crash last year. Yeah. And I think I can turn this down into an up. And then I want to have the hundred percent up. So sure. It would have been yeah. an up to just watch it on TV and cheer for her and celebrate yourself being at home in Hamburg would have been cool. Fine. You can put that on your palm array and everything. Okay but really living this up in Texas was it i think way more important also to me to really feel that and see that and be there and drink beers afterwards and everything well,
2: whatever everything's bigger in Texas <laughs> yeah.
3: and on the other <laughs> hand i mean you'll have weekends like ibiza where i always think well if i would be a coach who would not i do not want to say that i do not really would not really care but do it with not these, like you said, anxieties and ups and downs and everything. And I think that's possible up until until an average level where it not really is about the details and everything and the marginal gains. But if you really want to be, like you said, a world-class coach, I think you'll have to live through these ups and downs and you can't do without it. And then the only thing you have to ask yourself is, Who do you want to do this with? Who is the athlete you really want to have these ups and downs with? And is it like ups and downs you really understand? I mean, we all, I think, made the experience of, for example, downs, which we do not or which we did not understand. Probably you didn't Mm. understand Lionel's decision after 2017 or 18 when it was because it didn't make sense at all and you did not maybe you'll sometimes have a freak around which you do not really can like 100% calculate what his next step is and then you do not know why this down happened and then it really hurts sometimes yeah but if it's a cool athlete like cat just as an example um, or jocelyn also after the surgery stuff the whole winter and yeah winter, yeah i mean there was a hard time for her and then seeing her having this up was really really fine and i always tell myself that if i don't want to have these extreme ups and downs anymore then i have to retire from coaching at all i can't yeah. do this job in an average way it's just 100 percent or nothing that's the only chance you have i think And it doesn't have to do with traveling or not. In the end, I mean, it always depends on what is best for the athlete.
2: Yeah, and that's it's. I think it's um, it's interesting because the sort of sociology research around sort of athlete centered coaching has moved more towards um, a coach athlete centered coaching because what they're you know coming to the conclusion of which we kind of you know know in the real world is that really you can't you can't be athlete centered without, you know, also the coach being part of that. You know, you can't have a coach who's a thousand percent absorbed in the success and performance and training of an athlete, but is like making massive compromises in their own health and in their own personal circumstances. And in order to do that, because then that doesn't actually end up reflecting well on the athlete. And uh, I mean, I'm sure you've had experiences like that. I've had experiences like that and, but here's an interesting question for you then, sort of based on what you said. If you had to name um, one athlete like that you would love to work with, that you don't work with, well, who would that be?
3: That's a pretty good question. And I, I do not know a certain, or I, or I do not have a certain athlete in mind, but if I would need to decide that, I would just base the decision on personal things. So it wouldn't yeah. be uh, Gustav Eden, because you could be safe that you'll win the Kona title yeah. 10 years in a row or something, without knowing him personally good enough, to be honest. Um, but it would be, the matter would be just his behavior, his personal habits and everything, and not based yeah. on his performance level, for example. Yeah. So therefore, yeah, totally. I do not have one in mind. But But who are you thinking about? <laughs>
2: I'm not thinking of anyone either. I was just curious where you were going to go with that. That was all. I'm sure we could sit here and joke about people we definitely wouldn't wouldn't touch with a barge pole.
3: I mean, you coach Lionel. That's, for example, a thing where I always just from I do not know him personal, honestly. but um, the only thing just sometimes reading articles or sometimes watching videos. And I'm not the YouTube watcher. So honestly, i I mean, maybe five videos of Lionel so far. but, from what you hear and everything. And this is always a thing where I think Lionel is like, how do you say that in a positive way? Like a real challenge to, to be coached probably, which can be something that really motivates you. I mean, it's not about, we do not want to have the easy job. It's not like I want to have an athlete doing 100% what no. I'm telling him and therefore it's easy and that's my that's my goal for coaching an athlete like that. And Lionel is some kind of challenge, but you know that better than me if 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 there is a way to I mean obviously you showed it, but to really coach him consistent or if he's really like some people would say uncoachable, where I think nobody's uncoachable.
2: Yeah, I don't think I don't think somebody's uncoachable either. I think ultimately, you know, our responsibility at coaches is to be a little chameleon with our our communication style, you know, our empathy, uh, our inter um, introspection, so awareness of our own sort of, you know, feelings of, you know, in the context of responding to how things are said or how things are done, and and I think, you know, when I talk about that empathy, it's interesting that you know people always say, you know, you you should always try to walk in their shoes, but actually, when you sort of reflect on that a bit more philosophically what you realize is the better way to think about it is you need to help that person explain to you yeah. and help you understand what it is like yeah. to walk in their shoes and there's a fundamental difference there um and i think you know with with Lionel i mean even if he picks up the phone tomorrow and said hey you know you know twice bitten you know
3: I'm just waiting for it weeks. honestly can we,
2: can we take a third crack at things i i'd, I'd um, I know. I mean I would say yes, because you know, he's yeah. he is a wonderful guy. He's got a heart of gold and um, you know, he's he'd openly admit this, but he's stubborn as hell. Um yeah. but his head and heart are in the right place. And so, um, yeah, it's um if it was if it was um if it was um if it was easy, we'd all do it, you know, and every lots of people would do it. Um so um I think the how do you find the um the difficulties of managing personalities and understanding remotely?
3: So when I started coaching professionals, I thought I could just make it by soft skills and everything, just by what I think personal issues or communication should look like. Yeah. And then I had a really hard down, to be honest, realizing, well, there's a relationship uh, to an athlete where... I can't find the way or the tools or whatsoever to really get back on a good level of communication and everything and trust. And then we broke up. And I realized, well, sure, some specific circumstances led to that point. But on the other hand, I thought to myself that if I want to be a good coach, then I'll have to learn how to deal with these situations. And I, do not have to have my own personal habits. Yeah. Not like at first place, surely never, but like understand the personalities if even if they are not more or less similar to my personality. And then I did a uh, a mental coaching degree and that was probably the best thing in the whole education. Sure, sports science was important to understand the whole physiology and biomechanics and, and everything like that. But the mental coaching and understanding personalities and also not only rely on your soft skills, but knowing what will help this personality, whatever, ahead of a race in the training process and so on and so on was the biggest thing, honestly. And therefore, that is still a thing for me where I put a lot of effort in to really... Um, be concentrated on how to deal with him or her. Like, going to a race, like I do today, going to Kreisgau. Yeah. And there are three athletes in the race. And they are definitely that different that you'll always have to switch a bit. For sure, without losing your own, own personality, but switching in the relationship, you'll have to them. Yeah. So sometimes it's more... Trustful, even talking about private things, for example, which I would not do with every athlete. Sometimes it's more about, well, let's up set up the carbohydrates for the race on Saturday or Sunday. Let's uh, do a race plan, this and that, and then you're fine. Other athletes, it's just like hugging them, yeah, having a good time, having fun, and then they are happy, and then they're gonna have a good race. And that's still an, an effort means just a positive effort. That's still work to do for me to, I'll always need some time to, like today I'm sitting in the car three hours and then I'm starting making my plan how I want to have the relationship to all three in the next three days. And when I can set up times or whatsoever to bring whatever I want to bring up to them on certain points. And then I th- hopefully it's going to work out, like always. I mean, there's no master plan which says it's all going to be perfect. Sure. Because, I, I mean, you know that you'll have to deal with individuals and depending yes. on what they're up to at the moment, ha- are they having a good mood? Are they having a bad mood? Are they 100% self-confident for the weekend? Yes or no? Um, or even do not really know where they are at by now? Um, and that's yeah. always difficult, but like a good challenge, like difficult in a positive well a way.
2: And I, and I think you know, and I've I've learned, and I'm sure you've learned as well, is that like the kind of almost the secret to that is like just assume nothing. Yeah, like just don't go into any of these situations with any assumptions about, you know, how they feel about the circumstances or the surrounding or the venue. You know the the media's perspective of them, all of that is just like assume nothing, and um, like like you say, try and um, sort of meld how you support them to kind of how they are in that moment. Yeah. Um, and and I, so it kind of brings that an interesting point. Then, in. so do you? Uh, what What's your feeling on on how AI is going to affect us?
3: Not not at all. Not a single bit.
2: Because based on what you just said, I have the same point of view. Is I think everybody's talking about how it's going to kind of influence what we not do. Not a I, single I'm bit. I'm like we're we're dealing with humans, absolutely, not with...
3: and and honestly, I mean we are we we built up an AI diagnostics uh, some days ago, which we launched in December, which is a like a performance or power test you do in yes. on the outside. And then there's some AI behind finding out your physiology. And I mean, that's all based on standard sports science stuff, which is the knowledge behind, let's say. Which is fine because we just talk about finding out numbers. I mean, finding out a VO2 max out of a, whatever, four minutes all out test. So pretty simple. And there are mathematical formulas behind their sports science behind. And then what AI has to do is just to bring all that stuff together. And that's it. But from the coaching perspective, I mean, and we can extend that because we had a discussion in Germany, probably worldwide, when uh, the chat GBT came up and journalists saying uh, or being afraid of losing their jobs. And I was like, well, if you are a journalist, and you are afraid of losing your job to an AI system, then you are not doing your job pretty well. And then it's your problem. And then you're just not the right person for it. And that's like in coaching, exactly the same. I mean, if you want to get rid of standardized training plans, I am writing. If there's a system, I can put some metrics in, and then it writes probably the same training plan, which I do with my personal work fine. But coaching is not writing a training plan. I mean, this has nothing to do no. with coaching. It's always when, I, when I talk to all the other coaches, I have coaching age group, group athletes where it's a bit more, let's say standardized. Cause it's a, a normal job to do. So not like, yeah. Uh, your main job to coach professionals to be available for them more or less like 24 seven, let's say, and everything So therefore, it's a standardized job, a standardized price. It's more like service and customer than coach and athlete, for example. Mm. And which is like, I mean, at some point, we'll have to have that system. But if it really comes up to a good coaching, you'll always lose this service supplier, customer relationship. And you'll always be coach and athlete. And no AI can ever do that.
4: Hi. We're Luke and Beth McKenzie, the co-founders of Win Republic, were also former professional triathletes.
5: You can't be too modest. This is supposed to be an ad. He actually won nine Ironmans in his career.
4: Well, you won an Ironman when our daughter turned one. That's pretty solid too.
5: Okay, let's rewind. In 2013, when Luke came second at the Ironman World Championships, he was one of the first pro triathletes to focus on aerodynamics. He wore a sleeved aero tri-suit in the race when pretty much everyone else was still sporting sleeveless tri-tops and budgie smugglers. In the end though, I think your trucker hat became more well-known than your aero suit.
4: Until six years ago when we started Win Republic, I was passionate about aerodynamics and performance gains in textiles.
5: And I was passionate about style and function.
4: I wanted to call the brand Roo because I'm an Aussie, get it?
5: <laughs> I quickly vetoed that. Fortunately, we landed on Win Republic, named after our first daughter, Win, but also in the spirit of winning.
4: Our flagship logo is the California Bear and the Australian Southern Cross, a blend of our heritage and a reminder that our brand is built on family and passion for this sport.
5: So please check out the slipperiest and sexiest tri-suits and cycling gear on WinRepublic.com, and keep listening for Jack's Triathlon Hour discount code.
1: Okay, so I'm super excited to bring you all a 15% off discount code for WinRepublic. That discount code is TTH15. I've been using WinRepublic basically since they started. I saw them as the first tri-suit brand that made aerodynamic, comfortable suits that also looked amazing. They changed the game, in my opinion, for triathlon suits, and I honestly wouldn't race in anything else because my non-negotiables in a race suit are exactly that, that they're fast, comfy, and look awesome. I also use their cycling kit every single day and have done for about three years now. And something I love is that it's made by Luke and Beth who were both Ironman champions. And I mean, look at Luke, he was a second place finisher at Kona. They were amazing professional triathletes who understand exactly what we all want in our triathlon and cycling kit. That's what led them to start the brand because they, they saw that what they do now wasn't in the market. So they were the first people to do it. And in my opinion, are still the best to do it. So head across to Win Republic's website and use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your entire order.
2: I think also as well as I, you know, just some of the stuff around AI is, you know, there's things like AI that does facial recognition and emotion. Um, but but every AI system is trained. And I, I use this example yeah. when I was talking about it recently that um, I coach athletes globally. So I, you know, so so what I'm having to do is bridge culture gaps age gaps gender gaps even language gaps um and so you know in finland um have a reputation for if they have to say something in 10 words they'll use five (laughs) and and um and the the difference in facial expression between sad and happy is marginal at best and so i think when you when you like understand that in terms of differences in cultures and and behavioural patterns, and then you say, oh well, this AI system you could use it with your athletes when you're having a video call and it would tell you their emotional state. I'm like, well, would it really? Because where was the system trained? Was it trained in, on American students? Was it trained? You know, so, so I think people forget that these systems aren't sentient. Yeah. That they're they're trained on data and that biases what and how they do in fact in in New York state at the end of last year the, the government in New York state um banned the use of AI in recruitment yeah. uh, processes because they fundamentally felt that any system that's used in that scenario is is going to be inherently biased so yeah. um yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting
3: I think the the discussion about coaching and AI, isn't it a problem just because we haven't defined coaching so far? Isn't it a problem because some people or I would say still a pretty proper percentage of people thinks that coaching is writing a training plan Mm. and how to write a training plan without having a feedback of the athlete. I mean, never ever would it happen to sit down Open up today's plan or training peaks or whatsoever, writing a plan without having in mind what the athlete did yesterday or the day before, or how he or she feels, and not like it doesn't have to be in perfect detail, but a message about how are you doing, how was your training the last two days, getting back a check like, well, everything is going fine, rest day was perfect. Let's have a chat next yeah. week and then that's probably enough yeah. and that's fine. But I need that feedback. Otherwise, I can't write a training plan that would never work out. And just from personal perspectives, if one of my athletes would be tested positive, I would take that personal. And then next step would be to ask myself first what I have done wrong, that this athlete has to take this step. Because obviously he doesn't believe in what I'm doing, what we are doing, our plans for for his or her future whatsoever, the training mechanisms, Mm. the coachings and everything. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it.
2: I mean, I think it reminds me a little bit. It's like many years ago um, when the whole Lance thing blew up, um, Dan Enfield, who was famous for founding Quintana Roo and Slow Twitch. Dan wrote this article and 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 it really it really like struck a nerve with me because he said this phrase he said as human beings we are not morally monolithic. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good way of putting it because what he was basically saying was you know you could have a boss who is an incredible mentor, motivator, gives you autonomy, encourages you, supports you, but they could be like a terrible husband.
5: Yeah partner
2: and having affairs left, right, and center. And then you could have somebody who was like a really rubbish boss, like a dictator, not very respectful, but is an incredibly tearing husband and parent. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not being misogynistic there, just using that example. Um, And I think we forget that as humans, there's that disconnect between um, morals and ethics. And when we hear about dumping we think oh that person how can that person do that because they're such a nice person it's yeah. like well no but that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's just normal yeah, yeah that's yeah. just um one of my one of my friends um sort of involved in anti-doping he used to he used to coach or he still does i think coach africans that run sub 210 and yeah and he knows david howman who was head of WADA, and yeah. he was at a, co- a conference and the two of them were chatting and and David uses an example of they looked at research on plagiarism in Ivy League schools in yeah. the U.S. You know, which is a, a high pressure, high reward environment, and they looked at plagiarism you know in, in the pursuit of higher grades, and it was basically one in ten students cheat. And so David's point was, in society, in a high reward uh, situation, one in ten people are willing to blur the lines. Yeah. Why would we not think anything different in sport? And that's not an accusation. It's just like that whole situation recently with Colin, like people have said to me, I had multiple journalists contact me and other coaches and athletes. And they're like, you know, how what do you think about it? And I'm like, I'm ambivalent about it because it's like it doesn't surprise me. I think statistically it doesn't shock me. It's just like you know, it is what it is.
3: And in the end, it's just up to us to that's what were my first thoughts on this. How can I avoid a situation like that and even sharpen the sentences about not just doing the daily job, but just being a bit more, even more up to the anti-doping point and really thinking about what can I do just in my cosmos for, let's say, my athletes, whatever that means, or for my other yeah. coaches doing the coaching job, just to ask myself, what can I really do for it? Do I really know exactly about the anti-doping rules, for example? Do I really know how to deal with uh, situations like what Colin described? I mean, he talked about mental breakdowns and everything. Would I be capable of it to deal with it? Or would it make sense, even preventive, to which I'm a big fan of, having a psychologist, for example, around caring for that athlete? and um, yeah. that's that's a thing that helped me a lot having a good now now a friend of mine my psychologist first doing coachings with me then the same person i did my my mental coaching degree at now being some kind of partner in the whole coaching process every time it gets too let's say deep psychology wise where uh-huh. i'm not the expert especially when it comes to whatever you have, like if it's childhood trauma task or something like that, then I can't yeah, deal with it. And then I have someone around where I can say, well, he's a trustful guy, you can contact him. And that helped me a lot to really be fine with these extreme situations. Because I think so, just from what Colin described, it must have been, and I do believe him in saying that he really had a mental breakdown just from knowing that a lot of athletes are in the same situation about feeling that Mm. pressure where you have to perform where you have to earn money in the end where and everything like this and therefore it helped me a lot to have someone around where I can say well if it really is too extreme then there's someone around who can additionally help you and we're doing this all together if you want to
2: yeah, I think I think it's you know there's all this research that's been done on you know trauma breed talent. You know, UK Sport did some stuff pre-London yeah. uh, with like multiple Olympic medal-winning uh, athletes, um, yeah. and they they basically looked at let's let they, they they identified athletes that had won not just one Olympic medal but like multiple medals over multiple Olympics, and then they backtracked through their career to when they were yeah. like super successful juniors and found a peer that was identically good at that stage. And then they basically interviewed two individuals with their consent. And, and there's another paper that came, that was sort of talked about just this week, sort of similar. And it talked about this like former breed talent. And I think there's an element of truth to it. And you can certainly see how there's a need to maybe unpack some, you know, childhood PTSD or complex PTSD in a highly driven, driven athlete. You know, Lionel, as an example, has openly talked about his history. Mm. Yeah, it, it's such a tough one because I've had situations where I've helped athletes go down that rabbit hole. And yeah. the the wonderful thing, particularly in one situation, was they came away from that process and they said, you know what? I realized that I'm doing this professional sport for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, and, and so I'm 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 quitting, and I was like over the moon happy for them because they yeah. were prior to that process they were yeah. like wrapped with anxiety and doubt uh, on a performative basis, yeah. and and then they fixed it by realizing that they were doing this for all the wrong reasons. And yeah, that's that's why it doesn't define us. That's why sport doesn't define us. It's, yeah, um, yeah, it's a yeah, it's an right. interesting one. Yeah. Um, fun, fun, and sort of relatedly, funny enough. Last night, I was on the phone to an athlete, at least, and and so I'll put this question to you: Do you think that there's a place for psychedelics in professional sport?
3: Psychedelics, uh, d- define it like
2: like magic mushrooms as a as a as a clinical treatment of ah, mental. got health.
3: it. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I mean, you, there is some kind of I'm not absolutely not into, to be fair, because all this. Yeah spirituals things and the chats about lsd for example and everything like that i'm i do not really not like care for it but i do not have a clue yeah. at all honestly but yeah. there is a proper culture about i mean we all had some netflix docus, uh, documentations pointing out about what lsd could probably do to for example general health care or something like yes. that And I know people being 60 years old who are telling me about the good old times back in the 70s and (laughs) 80s where LSD helped a lot um, just for your health. So that's what they are describing, not like to have a good trip and a good weekend, but for really helping them to get the way out for a certain time, learning from that time and then get back to normal life and, and profit from it. So. But I don't know, honestly. I never really had contact at all. I didn't try it on my own. yeah. So, besides smoking weed, <laughs> never really. And I wouldn't count that in on psychedelics, really. So, therefore, I don't know. What's your point on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a big discussion point in the U.S. Um, at the moment. And there's like a billion-dollar industry growing out of, like, yeah. cl- clinical intervention. And, you know, you're seeing examples of, like, um particularly ex special forces yeah. folks that have got PTSD um and I you know I'm kind of PTSD complex PTSD is sort of complex PTSD is when there's like potentially childhood trauma layered on top of PTSD as a as an operator in you know in in, in the military environment that's a sort of simplistic view of it and there's a lot of people that have explored that to to help them unpack and be more uh, introspective around understanding their feelings, and then you're seeing that flow into Silicon Valley and um, you know executives wanting to uh, you know to leverage their mental health for the better with it. Um, I kind of feel that with professional athletes, if you were to a very simplistic view and said there might be some that do have some trauma that shaped them who they are and they they don't actually they haven't unpacked that as to why that is their why then you know maybe and that that's a very very sort of i'm not sure maybe but i think the reality of like race stress and race anxiety is contextual and situational in the moment it's not historically driven so that's i I kind of feel like i'm not i'm not so sure that there would be a place for it as a marginal gain um a good
3: question i mean legal wise it wouldn't be allowed right it would be a positive uh, doping test on lsd i'm not i'm
2: not I, you know straight up i'm i'm not sure whether i well, you know the the stuff in magic mushrooms i can't pronounce it um yeah. um but i'm not sure whether that would be um out of competition um and kind of circling back to your point about like concerns about working with athletes that you have concerns with i i remember i like one peer said to me that because of their own day-to-day work situation they said that whenever they got an inquiry from uh, a pro um, aside from asking around for sort of comments on the grapevine they would just put it out there like yep if you want to work me that's not a problem um i'll i'll arrange an out of competition anti-doping test and just to sort of see the response to that and and i guess if you were super paranoid and you had the funds because it's about it's about $1,000 a pop, you could throw an out-of-competition test at somebody that you work with, but I'm not sure that does much for your trust boundaries.
3: Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <So>. absolutely. But <laughs> on the other hand, I mean, to be honest, sure, ahead of the Colin case, I had discussions and talks with athletes about, let's say, not like doping or anti-doping, but about if you have, get medicine, and or have a new, let's make it easy, just having a new carbohydrate jail, yeah, asking whether it's on the I don't know if you know that, but we have in Germany, it's the Cologne list. It's a list from the German sports University, yeah, the biochemic in uh, institute, and they have a list where you can you as a as a manufacturer can bring your products in, then they get tested if they really do not have any kind of substances in there from the whatever from cross contamination. Yeah, I think in the That's UK it.
2: there's a in the UK I think there's something called like gold standard in the US there's NSF certified. Yeah. Um and in fact for, for athletes there's a nice website that I think I think it's 411supplement.org. It's a US website and it basically oh, yeah. uh it lists uh it lists all the known super sketchy supplements. that have been tested and known to be contaminated but it still doesn't change i remember jordan rat who's retired now saying that you know if you if, if you heard on the grapevine that there was a supplement that had osterin in it um
3: yeah you
2: know you and you were sort of a little bit unscrupulous you know you'd probably go and buy a whole batch of it yeah and then just keep one jar in the cupboard yeah and kind of merrily use it and then if you got caught and they said oh well you know how has this happened? You go. Well, I've been taking this, and you know, here's an unopened bottle. Go away and test it. And yeah. they test it and go, it's positive. And you go, oh my god,
3: yeah,
2: <laughs> it's contaminated. Oh
3: no. quite a good idea. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That takes some uh, forethought and planning, though. But yeah. What What do you think is the, What do you think is the biggest thing that's going to affect um, our sport in the in the next few years?
3: Money. <laughs> just first one. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, yeah. just just the question is to me, honestly, if I would also because I'm asking myself about like the typical question, what am I doing in five years, for example, or yeah, two yeah. years or yeah. ten years, I don't know. And uh latest when family comes in and you're building a house, for example, you do really care for that question, uh, just to be safe from from your yeah, just from life living. Um yeah. And what I'm often asking myself is we got so many changes in the sport coming up, like having the PTO, for example, entering the game, Yeah, which is positive in my opinion. I'm a big fan Absolutely. of the whole yeah. PTO thing because not, not because of money, but because they are the first ones to really... Trying to find a way to execute the whole potential in broadcasting and everything. And this is something I think we need in the sport if we want to be still the same kind of sport in, let's say, 10 or 20 years. Or if we want to make the next step to be more professional and everything. And I'm saying money because at some point professional sports has to do with money. I mean, we need probably coaches. We do have to travel. We need experts around and this and that, that costs money. And therefore the question is, or let's say, I think, especially long course distance triathlon is, I do not want to say unprofessional, but let's say it in a positive way, has a lot of potential in becoming more professional. Yes. Yeah. Not from performance not from how to increase your vo2 max but probably how to for example find any kind of whatever insurances when you have a crash for example yeah have better access to i do not know like sponsorships where you could say well it's not not everyone is his own manager trying to find sponsors not really having access to. There's no real system of... uh, Sure, we have some management agencies, but I mean, let's be fair. Who has access to these management agencies that are the ones who already earn quite a lot of money and who are interested or interesting for this agency to also earn money with? And if you are... When I think of people being like, Beginning of twenty years, something like that. Being talented, and then you you want to make your way up to, for example, professional mid-distance or long course distance, uh, triathlon. It's a pretty pretty long way, and if yeah. you see where the people are coming from, it's more sometimes more just by accident than by yes. a structured plan to be at that point. Like we have in football, for example, in Germany, it's a hundred percent standardized. Maybe sometimes too standardized about having the combination of professional football in younger years, but also perfect access to education, having people caring not only how what a good soccer player or football player you are, but also caring about your school degrees, your education, whatever comes up. Maybe your after-career stuff where you do need the education for. And I mean, tell me a point where an athlete would go at saying, well, I care for my after career. Can you help me out? Yeah, And maybe you'll find some agencies. I do not know. I do not honestly have access to the big management agencies so far. But from just from the experience, the sport needs to become more professional if we still want it in that way in 10 or 20 years. Same as I mean, Iron Man, who tells us that Iron Man is doing races in three or four years? I mean, yeah. if you would tell me they are bankrupt at the end of the year, I would say, well, I do not have any access to any data or I do not yes. know how their business is going, actually. But I wouldn't be surprised if you would tell me Ironman is over at the end of the year. So, yeah. and then seeing, like, in Germany, we have a big problem, actually, about the smaller triathlons, the smaller... People who are doing the triathlons to find participants, the numbers get lower and lower and lower. We have less athletes doing the races, probably not for the bigger races. I don't know, 100% no, but I see some, let's say, negative trends in there. And from my perspective, I would say we'll need to have access, for example, maybe over the broadcasting aspect, also to industries who do not rely on the sport on its own. I mean, who pays for football in England or Germany? Companies from all over the world do not really care for football. It's yeah. like whatever the big automobile yeah. country uh, industries or this and that. And in triathlon, the whole sponsorship is, just by feel, 80% built on the industry out of that sport. We all have yeah. hookah as a sponsor, uh Kenyon, uh, whatever, but yeah. not even Essex and not even Adidas because they don't care for triathlon. So yeah. sure, we'll have some little contracts about sponsorships, but it's not like you won't find Essex, Mercedes-Benz, this and that, and this and yeah. that as your sponsors, just maybe beside Jan Frodeno.
2: Yeah, unless you get to a certain point in your career you're working with agents. I mean, I'm fortunate I, I kind of have gotten to know some of the you know agencies over the years. There's certain individuals that have I know of, are, are of a certain generation that are, sort of have connections within the industry. We, within the endemic industry, I think the hard thing is finding an agent for a good athlete is finding an agent that has non-endemic connections. And then that's really where well, actually is this agent like part of a bigger group like IMG um, that is, you know, a significantly massive global brand in that context. Yeah. And, um, but it's always like, you know, you, you know somebody that knows somebody that can put you in touch and you're right. A lot of the sponsorships are, are endemic. And so within triathlon rather than the non-endemic and it's hard for athletes coming up to, um, you just look at, you know, look at certain examples, like, you know, Lucy Charles does a great job with her social media, but, 100%. you know, but her social media is her sister doing it. um, And, yeah. and race, you know, it's not, there's not like a professional, I mean, I'm not saying her sister isn't a professional videographer, photographer, yeah, yeah, yeah. etc. I'm just saying exactly it's not like, it's not a professional company entity yeah. that's come in and doing it. It's gonna like, it's like a circumstantial benefit, uh, and there's other individuals like that, you know. The, I think Talbot, you know, Talbot and I have had our uh, our run-ins over the years, but I think Talbot's fundamentally changed the media landscape of, of triathlon 20%. for the better. And I remember, I remember the first year he was in Kona, um, where he was there with um, Team Everyman Jack, and and he pretty much sleeping two hours a night yeah, yeah, yeah. for a, like a week, yeah. and he was just like just producing stuff. Pumping it out, doing it all pro bono, and you know, I, I think where what he's done and what he's created, how it's influenced the PTO, you know, there's there's a lot there, and there's a lot still to still be done and to learn be learned by up and coming athletes around. Um, uh, but but a lot of that falls on you and I, you know, it, it's like helping people understand. Oh, okay, based on my experience with all these athletes I've worked with over the years, you need to understand that at this point in your career you need to think about these things. And at this point in Korean, think about these things. And at this point, um, you need to think about these things. You know, a good example is Sebi. I think there's a lot of athletes out there that are probably of an age where they're starting to realize that they are not going to get to leave the, ter- the sport on their own terms. And that's the truth in pro- in all professional sport is that probably 95% of athletes in professional sport do not get to leave the sport on their own terms. Yeah. And I think what Sebi's done is by saying you know what i'm drawing a line in the sand in the future and from now until then i'm just gonna go and have fun totally it's brilliant because i can imagine for him now for him now there's no pressure there's no expectation there's no stress over oh my god um you know uh, who am i gonna be when i'm not an athlete you know what am i gonna do it's like i I've, I've set a limit it's like i know where that line in the sand is and i'm I'm just going to have fun now. And I think that's like, that's just so refreshing to see. And I, you know, maybe we see more um, older athletes, you know, take that route of, you know, setting out like a defined career path and saying, right there, that's it. Um, Rather than just sort of clinging on and clinging on
3: and,
2: you know, it it not being well for their own mental health.
3: Based, For the case of ZB, without knowing anything, but just, I mean, based on a absolutely high class career, being successful and already earned enough money, I would say. So not like for the rest of his Mm. life, probably, but at least that brings him probably in the situation saying that, well, the next five years, I don't care. So the bank account is doing fine. I have a little baby at home. My wife is doing a great job. Now we're switching around. I care yeah. for the home home stuff and the children. well, while my wife is just like going to work, which is not what I wanted to say, but earning the money and do, executing her her profession because yeah. I did it the last ten years. Perfect. but I think you'll have to be in that position if you take younger athletes who or even athletes probably in his age. And I'm not saying that it's all about money, don't get me wrong, but I think mm. it would help out if we'll find solutions about more money in the sport, better organizations, better whatever, insurances for whatever that means. Yeah. I do not mean like health insurance in the on the on the first case in this, but probably also insurances.
2: We like catastrophe. You mean like catastrophe insurance globally, like oh, you're you're at a PTO race in this country. No matter what happens, if you're there for that race, if something happens, we've got you covered kind of thing.
3: Also insurance in in a way, like I had the discussion, now we're back in the doping case. um, I had the discussion with Jocelyn um, playing a role in the whole anti-doping stuff at the PTO, Mm. for example. And she asked me about my opinion and I said, well for sure we need to discuss about out of competition tests, how often we get tested, which is all relied mainly on the national anti-doping agencies and this and that. But on the other hand, I mean, why are we not talking about a chance for athletes like Colin with a total mental breakdown to call someone who can help you? I mean, it, 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 it sounded like he's totally lost all alone is doing everything on his own, does not know how to earn money next year. And out of this, if it's true or not, I yeah. don't care. But out of this, we will have that very often. To have a phone number, you can reach out, having a psychologist on the phone who tells you the next steps you could do and just invest like having like
2: having like a wealth like having like a welfare officer within an organization like the PTO.
3: Yeah. yeah. And then we have the situation, I mean, what organizations do this whole long-distance triathlon? You have several, but none of them is the organization. I mean, who is the organization for the athletes? Who is the organization who hands you out at least some information, some phone numbers, some ideas whatsoever you could take in to just help yourself with whatever you need, whether it's like... Marketing, insurance, mental health. I don't know. And don't get me wrong, I do not have a plan about it. It's just I'm saying we need to, or not like need to, but there is a big potential in becoming more professional and that would help the whole sport. And in my opinion, I think we at some point, we need that to minimum stay on the same professional level where we are by now.
2: I think I could see, I could see. You know, when you look at corporate environment and you look at say a good corporate, you know, a good corporate structure has thousands of employees, has an HR department. That HR department covers welfare, covers, you know, conflict issues in the workplace. There's health insurance, there's dental insurance, there's maternity and paternity cover. And a good company realizes that if you provide that support structure, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats. If you if you free people of the stresses of, you know, welfare and health issues, then they potentially will more than likely be more productive, um, be able to have more autonomy, you know, add more to the bottom line, profit. And I think probably in long distance triathlon, particularly at the moment, you've got an organization like the PTO where, the definition of profit is still a bit etherous absolutely and and once i think my hope would be is that once that gets nailed down then all these things that you and i are talking about can then flow out of it because then it's a virtuous circle of well if we provide these things for the professionals then it you know it it drives our, their ability to perform and be less stressed and you know, battle against the best of the best, and that raises our brand. That raises the media. That raises the profit, and the profit feeds back in. So, I, I kind of think once that that gets nailed down, then I, I feel that the other thing can potentially happen. But yeah, it, it's a tough one. I think at the moment, it's so much falls on us to to teach the younger pros of like what it means to be a professional athlete. Or I was chatting with Cody Beals the other day um, about something and. And I said to Cody, I said, you know, you've, you've so much experience, you know, rather than coaching, you could probably make a good living out of actually mentoring younger pros and yeah. saying, look, let me, cause he's incredibly good at being a bike professional, both in terms of his sponsors, you know, operating himself as a business, all those things. And I think that's like hugely missing. Like somebody in the sport that says, Hey, you're new to this sport. These are the things that you need to like, you know, accept 100%. that you need to deal yeah. with in the same way that it happens in, in the real world, in the corporate environment. Like, oh, you've got this job. These are your responsibilities. These are your deliverables. These are the KPIs. At the moment, it's all on us.
3: Let's just draw the negative picture and then break it down to the coaching businesses or to us probably. I mean, if the PTO wouldn't be there in three years, I mean... That would mean that a lot of athletes, pro athletes, the ones who, for who the PTO money is not the cherry on the cake, but probably a big part of their existence as a pro triathlete, for example. And then it comes all the way down even to to the coaching businesses. I mean, before you get access to you or Dan Lorang or Dan Plus or whoever, I mean, you'll have to bring money with sure i mean that's yeah. where our business or let's say life is built on like i mean that's what we're up to and i mean if you would like a monthly fee let's say of something out of the draw like 500 euros per month i mean who could afford 500 euros per month paying yeah. for a coach now it's up to you or that's what i you're you hundred percent do the same without knowing that, but we'll always find solutions where it's not about the money. I mean, the money talk yeah. from my perspective is always the last one I'm doing when it comes to coaching. I, there's a lot of idealism behind a big motivation to coach someone this and that. And then in the end, we are talking about money. If it doesn't work out, if you have athletes who are not twice a world champion at Ironman, for example, then you'll, you can't say, well, it's like 500 euros. I don't care if you can afford it or not. Mm. Then you'll have to find solutions about how it's probably possible that you're building up an athlete and coach relationship. And again, when I'm saying it's about money, then I do not say that otherwise we can't do our jobs or something like this. I just say that it would be easier probably to have the chance to get a coach or to get a good coach, to... Involve your whole potential in in triathlon in the end. And that's why I'm saying money, just again, break it down on money, is a part of the professionalization of the whole sport and is needed. And that's why we have to always rethink if we are doing it fine. Now we are, do totally rely on the PTO. We have these PTO rankings and the PTO spending a lot of money for the athletes, which is great in my opinion. Perfect. Right. I mean, take the Ironman prize monies. The Ironman Lanza Rodi is on Saturday. What do we have today? Today's Thursday. So, in two days, I think winning it would mean, I don't know, $3,500, 5 yeah. probably. I mean, you yeah. can't even pay the trip to Lanza wherever you're coming from, for you and the two people around. That yeah. doesn't make sense at all that you earn $5,000. I think it's just three and a half or four and a half. I'm not sure. Yeah. And that won't work out. Sure, you got sponsors paying a little bit when you win it and this and that, I know. But winning a race or being successful in the sport should minimum enable you to a, let's say, proper career.
2: Or at least you'd like to put food on the table and a roof over to your put head. put food
3: on the table and that's it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, but yeah, I don't know, maybe it's it's interesting to 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 talk about it honestly because i there are always that's what i really like about the sport i mean if there's a lot of potential um it always means that several people have several perspectives on the potential the pto has a perspective yeah. on triathlon you have a different one ironman has a different one the pro athletes have a different one the sponsors have a different one and this and that And this is what I really like, to to have these discussions with the different perspectives. Sure, you and I are more or less coming from the same perspective, but then having the discussion with athletes, having the discussion like last weekend on Ibiza with people from the PTO, always interesting and always interesting to see the look behind the scenes, what they are really doing for a great job to do this broadcasting stuff, which I... Sometimes do you disagree with if we have the public discussion about, I mean, sure, I know motorbikes in front of the rider, big discussion, we have to find a solution on that, fine. Yeah. But seeing the work the PTO people are doing when they come over to training camp to the Canarian Islands just for two days of doing photo shootings and video shootings with Patrick and Kat and this and that, and they are having or doing a great job Behind the scenes, what we see in front is, well, this and that Instagram video or YouTube video or I don't know. But I really like the perspective and I really like the way they are executing it and really relying on the sport, thinking that there is a chance to make that more professional and to get, in the end, more profit from it. I mean, that's what they are up to. They won't do it for fun. And if they realize there's no profit in there, then they they skip that in three years. And and how do you say it? Like ecological things. I mean, we'll have to have an open discussion if it makes sense to travel to Kona every year. That's a a thing personally from my side, which I'm not into like I do say that the green way is a thing we'll have to do now with 100% otherwise the world's going to be burned down in, in three True. years, not like that. But I think in a clever sport where you have a lot of academics, people with good education, this and that, we'll. I see the responsibility for us, us means the whole triathlon business probably, to be one of the firsts Thinking at least thinking about strategies, how we could be more ecological when it comes to racing and training camps and probably also like the typical sponsor stuff and everything. Because if not us, who should be the first to really care for it? And Kona is a thing. I love to be there. Perfect surroundings. But honestly, if it's World Championships time, I don't care if it's in Nice or on Kona. I care for the people around, I care for the race, I care for the course, the tactics and everything. And in the end, probably the result or the race itself, I don't know. But I don't care if it's in France or in Kona or it switches around from year to year to year. year. I'm open for everything as long as we at least think about if it makes sense also from the ecological side side, because I see a responsibility in there
2: yeah i think i think the size of the events demands a responsibility to care for the community you know so that it's not like sometimes the olympics where you know all that money is spent on building buildings and you know the you know workers die in the process of building these buildings and then 100%. the olympics is over and then there's just like derelict sites um you know just because you know, there was a huge, you know, revenue stream through marketing. Um, I think, yeah, there's, there has to be a responsibility, um, to have a better impact on the local communities. And, and I think the whole Kona, not Kona thing is an interesting one. I think you know all of us could accept that there's such a history to Kona, but actually really, if you were to get really hung up about it, you would say, well, actually the history isn't Kona, it's on the other island.
0: Because <laughs> that's right. where the
2: original race started. So let's, you know, let's not have a semantic debate about it. Um, and I think you look at other professional sports; they've moved away from, you know, the 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 championship being at one venue all the time. You know, you have you have the Masters in golf. You have, you know, Wimbledon and the Australian Open and the U.S. Open in tennis. And it would be nice to think that Ironman would move to that model. In a, in the most efficacious way, and I, I I think separating the men and women, we're going to see how that goes. But you know, maybe yeah. in the future they they go back to the same place.
5: Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe not, because it just depends on the number of age groupers and the venues that yeah. they can get. But I I could see how that would be would be better. And and from a professional point of view, I would say if you if you win if you win Kona and let me think just thinking of some examples um if you win Kona and you win Norseman that gets used as a venue yeah
0: um
2: and being a bit extreme here and you win and you win South Africa then how could you not be considered the greatest athlete of all time because 100%. literally you've won you've won on every environment in every conditions on every terrain like nice, 100%. I mean yeah like you know, Nice Kona South Africa you know somewhere in you know, Scandinavian companies, countries, you just proved you can do anything everywhere. You can do it all everywhere.
3: More or less like the discussion we had in Pro Cycling in the last 10 years when they, when you could really feel that they are thinking about how to make the Tour de France, for example, more attractive. And then we had like team time trials, uphill time trials, cobblestone sections, gravel yeah. sections in the end. And there was a big discussion about, well, why isn't it like 21 days, two time trials, seven mountain stages, and it wins the one with the best watts per kilogram body weight or body uh, power to weight ratio? Um, And it's boring. And the argumentation was always like, well, you are the best bike rider slash winner of the Tour de France if you can also handle the gravel sections or if you can yeah. also handle the cobblestone sections. Yeah. And that was a good thought, in my opinion, because like you said, racing in Nice will be totally different from racing in Kona. I mean, yeah. it has way more meters in altitude. It has, yeah. and now the, the Americans have to be strong. I mean, it has corners you'll have to go through yeah. in the end. <laughs> So technical. Pay... Rudy,
2: Rudy Von Berg is like licking his chops. At like I can literally <laughs> close my eyes and descend my bike down that mountain because
3: it's in my back garden. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And then I was at the in Texas, which was some kind of fun and, and without sounding any kind of disrespectful. But so far we had the discussion about Nice and Kona and it's like, well, yeah, more meters than altitude, typical European roads, corners, tight corners and everything, uh, fast downhill sections. And then I was in Texas where I very often heard, well, how can Man do this? This is so dangerous. There are going to be so (laughs) many crashes and everything. And I was like, well, I haven't thought on this honestly so far. And I didn't see the point for, let's say, you Americans who do not know the European roads like we do, that it's such a big thing for you. And I heard very yeah. often that a lot of athletes from North America are not coming or probably thinking of not coming to the world yeah. championships in Nice because they say, Well, I get 10 minutes on the downhill section, so what why why should I be there?
1: Yeah.
3: And there was an interesting point because I honestly didn't see that. And I do not see the risk in there. Sure, it's more risky than probably yeah. racing Kona, I don't know, but I mean we're doing Ironman's in Nice since I don't know fifteen years, twenty years, and it's the same course.
2: I know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's I don't currently have anybody racing uh racing Nice, but you know, if it was me, I would be I would be trying to find I would be trying to find a local motorbike gendarmerie officer and sticking my pro on the back of that bike and 100%. literally saying Take that person up the mountain and down the mountain and talk through all the corners, what you're yeah. looking at, how are you reading the cambers, how are you reading the road surfaces, how are you reading, you know, the you know, the, the bends and, you know, where are you breaking, where are you not breaking. Yeah, that would, hands down, that is what I would be doing um, as a
3: opportunity. And it's really fun at the moment to have this whole process because there are a lot of things new to the whole Ironman preparation so like, mm. sure, Patrick is doing Roth, which is, I do not want to say that it's easy or something, but it's sure, you know, the race, you know, the course, you know, the surroundings, you know, the location where you're staying, you know, where the important sections are on the bike, you know, how to run fast on that course, everything like that, you know, the swim, but knee is going to be totally different. And that's really interesting about it. And honestly, it motivates me a lot to really rethink that racing because, just starting from the swim. I mean, sure, we know that the swim is getting more and more and more important. You'll have yeah. to be in this first group because otherwise yeah. you are losing the group and then this and that. And in knees, I think it's going to be even more important than normally because the the bike section, especially at the beginning, when while you're out of town, then going uphill and downhill, yeah. and it, especially the uphill section will... Brings so much trouble into this field. And you'll want to be up there, I think. Because if you made it to the top point, then you'll have some, like, 40Ks or something going up and down slightly, like a rolling course. (laughs) And then the downhill section will will be a thing, in my opinion, where probably you'll have some kind of pre-decision about the end of the race. Yes like you said you'll have to know that course or that section perfectly yes yeah. otherwise i mean you can lose like five minutes on that one and
2: what oh, totally, totally. we all know
3: is if you lose five minutes on people who can run 235 in the end on the yeah, course you're done. i mean yeah. then it's yeah. over i mean and
2: i think i think what's interesting is that people forget you know when we're coaching athletes um you know the there's this it, it, obviously our job is to make them faster and you look at the science and it says you know, the the fastest way to get from point A to point B is to manage your sort of metabolic sort of effort yeah, yeah, yeah. as evenly as possible. And it's yeah. like a constant discussion that I have with pros of, and, and it's kind of how I coach, is you won't really find me giving people workouts where there's lots of steady blocks of race specific work, because yeah. the reality is is you don't get to race like that exactly you, you know it it's like ironman and 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 middle distance racing is like to me is is like road racing but you're not a sprinter you're not a ruler you're not a yeah. puncher you're not a, you know you're not a gc yeah. contender you're all yeah. of those things put together yeah so you know i always use the analogy of uh and this is no disrespect to, you know, to your athletes but i always use this analogy of um Right, racing long distance triathlon is like, it's like playing poker with a physiological hand and you need to know your hand and you need to know how to bet and how to bluff. And the majority okay. of athletes are not very good at that. I mean, how many times have you heard people cross the finish line in Kona after horrendous, like four hour run and be like, yeah, I had a good swim. I came out of T1 with a group and I was just like, yeah, I felt good. So I thought I'm going to go for it. And, that first hour on the bike was just like really, really hard. But I just thought I'm in the group. i got to go for it. And then, yeah, but then you jogged the four-hour marathon. So you're an idiot. You know, you need to know your hand. You need to know how to bet and bluff. And of course, like Nice, is like if you don't know, like how many matches you can burn and how you can recover from those, you're done. You know, nobody's showing up at that race really, really fit and just winging it. Not a chance in yeah, 100%. hell. Um, yeah, somebody's going to be pushing 400 watts up those climbs. So,
3: sure. I mean, honestly, that's. I'm pretty sure that I know what Patrick would need to just keep the wheels. Let's say, and it, yeah. this time, I mean, it's a bit of a benefit that it's really a steep climb, not like a Didn't. Kona climb or something, not yeah. like an American climb, but in a European climb yeah, and that's a good one. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the other hand, you'll have to consider not only about the uphill, like you said, not only probably about physiology, but we'll have to discuss aerodynamics or even technique on the bike yeah in a, on a on a way different level than we would normally do,
2: like yeah, like a weight weight distribution on the bike. you know, yes, my triathlon bike is really, really fast but does my position set me up with too much weight distribution over the front of the bike? And so handling this thing on chicanes is going to be like being strapped to a drunken exoset missile. You know, um, do I need to change my setup in order to like optimize my ability to descend? And then do I need to go away and learn about counter steering and, you know, how I, how I descend with somebody that like, that's their job. You, I'm sure you've got some pro cyclists that you're phoning up and going, "Hey, can you just, you know, come out to this place and and take Patrick down this mountain and help him realize how not to soil his And honestly, big I mean, he, he
3: he trains pretty often with, with pro cyclists, and I see yeah. a big benefit in there. I mean, if you yeah. really have some world to riders around uh, in yeah. town and going training with them in Austria, where you also have uphill and downhill and everything sections, it's good. I mean, I really. I see a big benefit, not only in relation to riding on Swift, for example, but also to just (laughs) riding alone or on your own or where you think technique should look like on a downhill section. But if you're riding with a world to, to a cyclist, then you realize how riding downhill should really look like. And that's a big, big thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, uh, I when I used to live in when I used to live in Spain, we had um uh, we had a sort of a really high level cyclist come out for a training camp with a group of cyclists, and we went out and we were coming down this mountain descent at the back of Malaga. And I'm when I was younger, I was pretty good at descending and a bit mental. Yeah. And I'm and I'm holding his wheel, and we came around this one corner, and you know we were going so fast that you know the grip on the tire is, I'm I'm drifting out on the road, and
0: yeah. we got
2: to a point where basically we're going around this corner. Uh, it it's like a left hand corner and I'm drifting out and I'm like in the drops. Uh, I'm like fully weighted properly. And then I realized the only way that I'm staying on this road is I literally need to take my right knee and yeah. run it and run it along the barrier on the side of the road to keep me on the road. And I sort of <laughs> I did I did that for a couple of meters and then I was like, yeah, I think I'll let them carry on down the mountain a bit quicker than me. <laughs> it's just like you know, you have to, you have to, you have to think outside the box. I remember uh, there was a lady that um, was a, um, was a really good cyclist that I knew who happened to be a yoga instructor, and she mm-hmm. hands down said that the reason that she was so good at handling the bike, like like exponentially good, was because she was so in tune with her body, and Imagine. you know, uh, and thinking outside the box like that as a coach sometimes, you know. Gets you the answers. I, I do some I do some consulting with UFC fighters. And mm-hmm. when I looked into the physiology of that, I actually ended up going down a rabbit hole of looking at like freediving. And you think, what the hell has freediving got to do with UFC? It's like, well, okay, well, hang on a minute. Imagine being in a ring with an 80 kilo guy sat on your chest. Your thorax is completely immovable and you're trying to maximally exert yourself whilst he's also trying to punch you in the face. Yeah. That's basically trying to operate <laughs> hypoxically, you know.
3: Um, example,
2: yeah. yeah. You have to think 100%. outside the box sometimes.
3: Yeah, so. that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Ooh, so, I think I'll have to leave now because I have you to probably leave need my... to have some lunch and jump in the car. So, absolutely fine to talk with you. Really, yeah, no, that was good let's let's stay in contact if you want yeah, to call in me in for the for the Kona stuff so if you are yeah. there just let me know and I'll set up a okay. meeting so I yeah, have a good, good location there where we could all meet and I ask the the both dance if they want to come yeah. over and everything so that could be fun so so, so, so just uh, that's on my table yeah um, okay and yeah whenever we we find time to to chat around yeah always into. always
2: open but open book so 100%. feel free to, to shout and uh Keep posting on the wind tunnel as well. Good to know when it's up and running.
3: Definitely. I'll definitely do. it. Yeah, yeah. David, thank right. you. Take care, everyone. Have a good day. See so. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: I've been using Precision Fjorn Hydration basically all year now. I was just so sick of not having my nutrition nailed. I'd get this sporadic upset stomach like all the time. There were long rides where I'd finish and my gut would just be no good. Long rides that were the same, if not even worse, to be honest. And my whole time racing one of my main worries leading up to the race and in the morning of of the race was just like, how's my gut going to be today? And that's why I made the decision to finally nail it in 2023. And so I tried basically every brand I could find. And after testing everything for a few months, Precision was by far the best brand I tried. Like by far. I never have an upset stomach. I find their products subtle and easy to get down um so yeah I reached out to them and said hey like I love your product I've been using it for a few months now it's the only it's the only brand I want to use will you support the podcast and like luckily they said yes because if not um yeah I, I don't know I'd be really, like I'm just so happy that I get to bring bring like the news to everyone and, and provide a discount code so that you can try it for yourself so I'm, I'm really stoked about that my favorite products from from them are the PF90 gel or the PF60 drink mix which I've been experimenting with lately and really love um both of those I use on the bike And then the PF30 gel for long runs or run sessions and the PH1500 electrolyte tablet, I just use all the time. I use it in the mornings or the night before, long training days, same like with with the night before and and the morning of like um, really hot training days where I've got a bit of training on and I always have it on on like the swim deck for my swim sessions. Uh, If you care about your training and and you want to dial in your nutrition too, just trust me, go and try Precision Fuel and Hydration and you'll be like me and you just won't go back. You won't use anything else. Use the code HTT23 for 15% off your order at checkout.